So I caught up with Mark Pollard uh, last week, so Mark should be familiar uh, to anyone listening to this. So we talked about his uh, book, Strategy Is Your Words, which has just come out, and I actually have a copy yet. Um, We talked about that, a bit about the um, 100 Days of Strategy training course that he's put together that you can subscribe to and we also kind of got schooled in mid-90s hip-hop with a few with five uh, tunes that Mark's selected a couple I knew a few that I didn't so um, without further ado kick the bass for them brothers and sisters and let them know what goes on Morning, Mark. How are you? What's up, Ian? How are you? I'm well. Yeah, me too. Me too. How's um, uh, how's sort of New York City lockdown life? Is it getting back to normal or still? Uh, it's been quiet. I mean, there are phases of very quiet to quiet. Right now, it's quiet. Schools are gradually going back, but I think they're very tentative with any physical presence. I've been walking laps of Central Park. I've, I think I've walked like. 700 actually probably close to 900 kilometers around central park in the past three or four months so i I get out and see it i just say it's it's tentative and and nervous and also defiant yeah Uh, it's you know new york just it will continue on it doesn't care it's designed to continue on in spite of whoever or whatever occupies it well yeah i mean i remember because a few years ago when there was the um those big storms and massive floods and everything and, and all that kind of stuff. And it was just like, meh. Yep. You know, <laughs> I remember, I remember hearing an interview uh, once with Lou Reed uh, and he was being interviewed by some journalists and they were trying to record it. Probably had one of these little recorders that sat on the desk and Lou Reed is sort of sat there and the, the journalist is going, uh, oh, you know, uh, I'm going to record it on this thing, but like this traffic noise outside and everything. And Louie says, it's New York. What do you want me to do? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, thought, that's, that's the attitude. It just, you know? it, just, it, it just doesn't care. Like we, I sat down to record some stuff the other day and they, the people outside decided to build uh, scaffolding all around the building just yeah. as I sat down to record. Like you, yeah. it doesn't care. And, and it can drive you crazy. Like you definitely pay a mental and emotional tax for it, let alone yeah. financial. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it, it doesn't care. So I think it puts pressure mm-hmm. on you to work out what you're doing here. <laughs> is it that, when it, this is when I was still in Scotland, but I, I was young, but a mate of mine had, uh, you know, like 17 or something, decided to move to London. And he used to send me cassettes. He would just walk around London with a, one of these cassette tape recorders, just recording the sound of, you know, oh. of London. You know? <laughs> Love it. it you know, it's mostly just traffic and stuff. But I don't know. It's pretty conceptual. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so what what I thought so to, first of all, so we're going to do a couple of things um, in this next hour. So you're going to educate us a bit on the sort of uh, mid '90s uh, hip hop, um, and so that is going to be interesting. Uh, just for benefit of listeners, I've had advanced uh, advanced warning of these tunes, and there's a few uh, crackers. I've got to say, 
Um, <laughs> it will be an education, uh, you know, because this is probably stuff that, uh, unless you're a aficionado, um, probably won't won't know about it. I was, I was saying before we hit record, I knew two, so I feel pretty pleased uh, about that. Mm. Yeah, and then. Uh, and then we'll have a, um, then you can talk a bit, a bit about, because obviously the book has just, um, in the last few weeks, started to uh, make its way out of your warehouse into the arms of some lucky recipients. Uh, I, I must say now, I am not one of them because I was just too slow uh, to, to get behind the Kickstarter thing, so I, so I missed it. So I'm going to have to wait for, um, well, well, perhaps you can tell us what's, what what the plan is um obviously there's this limited edition hardback very very nice coffee table sort of uh, thing but i think when we spoke before on your podcast you were sort of mulling different ideas of how to get it to the wider populace what's the what's the latest on that still mulling and it's funny because people often ask questions as if you're supposed to follow a certain checklist or a certain book of rules and i'm, I'm not this is, this is my art i happen to write art about strategy sorry yeah. if that's pretentious but i sat down and thought deeply about how i feel about the world and put it into a book that happens to focus on strategy it's you know so i can do whatever i want because it's art and so i've put it out into the world in, in hardcover and then i'll do some e versions eventually and not doing pdf it's weird when you spend ages and ages and ages months writing something yeah. that comes from 10 20 years experience people are like oh you're gonna put it in a pdf no i'm not gonna put it in the pdf mm -hmm. uh and getting it translated into spanish and portuguese brazilian portuguese right now so i'll have that and uh, those translations in the next week or two and then you know i'm gonna sit on this book and push it for a few years and yeah. some of that does come back some of my ideas and thoughts on this do they come back to what i saw around the underground rap scene in Sydney when I was coming up where often an artist thinks that their main job is to make the album and then right. they release it and they're like, hang on, why aren't people playing it? And it's like, no, no, that's the start. You've got to tour yeah. it. You've got so much energy behind it yeah. and you might do that for two to three years. And so I'm, I'm keeping lessons in my head from 20 plus years ago, watching people yeah. release music and not being happy, happy with how the music entered the world. Uh, how much of it is the sort of DIY ethos? Uh, you know, I mean, you know, because if if you, you're the publisher, you're the author, you're the illustrator, you're the marketing department, so you've got total control, yeah, over everything. Yeah, um, and is that is that? That's what I know, wanted. That's what, that's what I wanted. I mean, like you know, this is the first time I've written something like this. I I published a, a rap magazine. I set up one of the well, it's technically the the first full color hip hop magazine in the southern hemisphere with a cd slash cd rom which yeah. was exhausting to make for a period of yeah. time but that was before the internet could handle video in any meaningful way yeah this is a diy project it, but again back in the day when i used to put on events between the age of say 18 to 25 26 i would have an idea i would book a venue negotiate with them design posters often not very well yeah. and i would go put them up at 4 a.m down Parramatta road i live in Camperdown and glebe and ultimo and mostly in those areas and, and I would just go make it happen and usually wouldn't earn much money if anything a couple hundred bucks if you're lucky yeah. but I enjoyed doing it and then when I moved into more formal roles and more committed roles in agencies a couple of things frustrated me which is like hang on first of all why do people keep using the phrase limited budget 
try putting on a music event with no money. Then you're going to know what a limited budget is. $300,000 Australian or US, not a limited budget. That's good. And also, by the way, all budgets are limited. And then there's just the bureaucracy and the slowness sometimes in some places, less so in Australia, but in in some places, just like, come on, let's let's go, let's act, move, move, move. Because I was used to putting up posters in the middle of the night. So How how easy was it? How, back back then, so give us well, the sort of time frame for that. So what sort of years are we are we talking about? Um, uh, so nineteen, my magazine came out. I think it was June nineteen ninety nine. I'm going to say June okay. nineteen ninety nine. I was twenty one. I had the prior year. I'm pretty sure I'm getting this right. I'd taken over the main hip hop radio show in Sydney called the Mothership Connection, and it had been going on for about ten years. And at least one of these tracks, probably two of these tracks, a couple of these tracks. Mothership Connection. That's that's a little sort of George Clinton. It is. It is. It was a radio show set up by uh, Miguel D'Souza, who's still pretty active in Sydney. He's he's a journalist, and I believe he set it up with someone, and then it became his his main focus. And that was at the top of two SCR. I'd be up there at two AM interviewing rappers that a lot of you would know in the middle of the night, because again, I was living around Glebe, Ultimo, Camperdown, mostly Glebe and Camperdown, but. uh, it was like 1998 to 2006, which is when I had my firstborn. Those years were pretty active with hip hop. Dropped off yeah. after I hit, hit 25 because I had a, a crappy attitude towards age. I just thought I was too old for a lot of stuff like martial arts and music. And yeah. I thought like, oh, I'm going to settle down now. Yeah. But those those were the years. Yeah. I, I remember having a similar sort of you know, existential crisis. It was 27. Yeah, mm. so I thought that's it, it's, you know, because it was like after 25, it wasn't just after, it was like now, it's, you know, virtually 30, and I thought well, that's mm. it, it's all, it's all over. Yeah, yeah I, I still remember sitting in Tribal DDB, they gave me 20 hours a week uh, to be a digital producer, I would go off and do my martial arts during the day, I would stay back sometimes sleeping under the desk, making my magazine, mm. and uh, I still remember coming across this concept of a quarter life crisis, which was new, it was newish then when I was 25, so 17 years ago. Yeah. And I was like, I was just burnt out and tired. I'd been around agencies since I was 19 on and off, like a dot com and freelancing and, and writing and just trying to make things, I was just trying to exist, I had no real idea. Yeah. And I'm sitting there, you know, making websites on one hand, making a magazine and then I'm Googling things like, uh, doing Thai boxing in Thailand or teaching English in South Korea. I was just like, man, I don't, I don't know if I exist in this, like, I don't know if I belong in this world. Where can I go be? Yeah. So I, I hit it at 25. A lot of people would obviously hit it as I, as I reach 30 and then late thirties to early forties. I think a lot of people go through it again. Yeah. Wait till, wait till you get to 50 minutes. <laughs> mm. Can't wait. Yeah. But then you get a second wind, you know, like all of a sudden, uh, you know, someone said to me once that, uh, you know, it's kind of really difficult to learn anything new after you're 40. You know, it's like, that is bullshit because until yeah. I was 40, I knew nothing. Everything I know now has happened in those last uh, you know, X amount of you know, years since then. But, uh, well, but the, the I, thing, I think it's just on the age thing, though, just on the age thing, I think it's worth splitting biological age from like a quote unquote spiritual age. Sorry if that's corny. But, you know, in some ways, I've always felt 10 years older because I, you know, I grew up in a broken home, a single mom, etc. not to be dramatic, but like I always felt I had adult feelings and emotions around me at all times, even from a really, really young age. And so I always felt a bit older and, uh, you know, and, and potentially cynical because of that, like 
Mm. Life is a bit of suffering. But biological age and, and spiritual age is, I think, interesting because that spiritual age, that crossing that people talk about in philosophy, but also in some different schools of religion, yeah. that second half of life is not about 40 or 50. It's about when you start to build more of your life around helping other people, right. not just yourself. Yeah. And I'm aggressively trying to do that while also trying to, you know, make art and provide for a family in America. But I am very, very conscious. Although with the magazine, I was pretty conscious of trying to help the, the hip hop community and hip hop scene in Australia, especially. Yeah. But it's uh, partly biological age. But I think there's a spiritual awakening, awakening available to people if they want it. Yeah. So that probably that's a good, good way to introduce the sort of. So there's going to be a few threads to this conversation, but the. Um, the the other one was um, was a little sequence of of tweets that uh, that you put out a couple of months ago, and it's uh, I don't normally sort of save Twitter threads and everything, you know, but that, but I I grabbed that one. And I thought this is well, a I think we need to talk about this, and and two it was um there were just some really sort of simple insights. Um, you know, you know, it's rare to get one, but you sort of weighed out ten in a row. You know, and I was just like, wow. You know, um, so we'll kind of weave weave those into the, this chat as well. So the number one, that this seems a, a appropriate point to bring that one in because your your first sort of observation uh, in that stream of consciousness that you made was you said you said that you peaked before you knew what you were doing. Um, so. You know, I think we could sort of unpack that a little bit, you know, because yeah. probably because because this time now, I mean, in terms of your, you know, canon of creative output, you know, so doing magazines, running club nights, and you know, radio shows, and blah blah blah, all that stuff around music that was your passion, and then sort of rising to the top in agencies, and then breaking out on your own. But you still, you know, and then now, you know, producing, you know, books and training the next generation and everything, yet you still think that you peaked before you knew what you were doing. Yeah. You know, I'm being a little bit cheeky with what I'm putting out here. And the main context is it, and the main context of it is that I've just passed nine years in America. I was applying for a new visa. I had to get a lot of paperwork together to make this application. And so I was feeling nostalgic. I was about to publish a book, a little mm. bit of panic. I, I, feel, I feel confident and happy with the book in a lot of ways, you know, where your own work's weak. A mm. uh, bit of panic there and I was doing daily strategy classes. I was making them for 100 days in a row. So there was a lot going on at the same time. I've got, you know, the stories of people suffering right now and friends passing away or potentially passing away and various other things going on. And I was like, look, let me just write from a place of truth. Yeah. So in advertising, the best work I was around was absolutely at Leo Bennett Sydney. Todd Sampson, who many people in Australia would know, was yeah. generous enough with other people to hire me as an experiment at the age of 28. I was freelancing, doing digital production, where that was doing a lot of stuff. It wasn't just doing what producers do now. We, we would do the strategy, we would do information architecture and user experience. And he offered me a job there, and I was also fortunate to be offered a job at BMF, uh, Jeremy Nicholas, another awesome strategy leader, and I, I chose to stay at Leo Burnett. And I didn't really know what I was doing. I was learning how to write creative briefs at 28, 29, and we were largely left to our own devices. Yeah. Uh, 
but high expectations. And that place knew how to win can awards. And so that yeah. place pumped out things like Earth Hour by WWF and, or with WWF, Wild Wildlife Fund, uh, McDonald's Name at Burger, Canon Photo 5, which became Photo Chains, and a lot of these won titaniums or massive awards. I was still working out what I was doing as far as strategy. Yeah. Now, I, I kind of know what I'm doing. I, yeah. You never know that you've reached somewhere until you've sat there, written it, and then shared it with someone. So I don't approach it with crazy arrogance. But I kind of know what I'm doing. Yeah. Still a lot of self-doubt. But yeah. back then, I was fortunate enough to be around some incredible work while just just learning yeah. what I was doing. Right? I should, you know, I think as you get older and more experienced, it's kind of you know. It's not like you know the answers immediately, but you know you're much more comfortable with the process that you have to go through. You say, right, yeah. I need to do this, and I need to do this, and I need to do this before uh, you know I can come up with any sort of uh, conclusion. You know, so I, th I think that, you know, I don't know. That's what it feels like for me. It's like I, th I don't feel any wiser. It's just I, I'm just more easy with the steps that I need need to go through. Yeah, yeah. If you're more comfortable with what you don't know yeah. and and having an approach that will help you work it out <laughs> and then you embra embrace the uncertainty of it. Yeah. When, you're doing the, when you're doing the teaching, how much of that is, are you, are you teaching the Mark Pollard way or are you, are you sort of going through, you know, various sort of established processes you know, I guess for a student or whatever they are, yeah. you know, when they come in, you know, what, what do they want from it? Do they want to be like you or do they, or do they just want, they want to get, um, you know, all the different tool sets and everything that, through the ages that, uh, you know, SWOT analysis and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'll, I'll go through a SWOT. I mean, yeah. I, I teach the things that I use and right. they're my go-to techniques because I was the digital guy in the agency world not used to having much time to do anything mm. and then the rest of the agency world came like that and at a time where I'd get thrown on projects and you'd have two weeks or then a week or then a day and it's like whoa yeah. and you hear stories about the generation before you having six months or nine months and so th yeah. these are all my go-to techniques yeah. but what I am increasingly insisting on is that it's not good enough just to learn a technique or a framework without working out who you are without understanding your own psychology without trying to understand the psychology of your colleagues and also without understanding the cultures that you're in yeah. which means that you need to form a sense of philosophy for what you're about and it doesn't have to be a big heavy like old school european idea it's like yeah. work out what you're about and then you get to do the stuff but like learning, yeah. learning a framework without knowing what words are without understanding yourself you're not going to be able to use it in any deep and meaningful way so i yeah. try to put all that stuff together yeah. I don't know if it's unique. I don't think it's common. And I also know it's not for everyone. Yeah. Cool. Well, listen, we got, we're going to have to get some, get these tunes in. So give us your, what, what's the first, uh, first record you're going to play? See, I called it a record, you know, because I suppose it's 1997, so it would have been, yeah. <laughs> no, like, yeah, yeah, it's like, uh, I don't even if, I don't know how much we used the word record back then. We would have used vinyl, EPLP, but it was also, I, I still remember working again at Leo Burnett and someone from a well-known English agency came out and started to use the word film instead of ad or TVC. And I was like, oh, these things are called films. That's so English, I like it. Uh, so look, what I've done is I've chosen five tracks that I often return to, songs, tracks, I call them tracks. Five tracks I return to. And my reaction when I first came across these tracks 
was oh i didn't know hip-hop could be like this yeah so that's that's the theme that brings these things together the first one is sonically kind of weird and funky and gritty and happy and it's by yeah. a group called latyrix l-a-t-y-r-x and it's called yeah. lady don't techno and it has this crazy big funky beat it did used to get played in underground clubs uh somewhat and it's got a little bit of singing and rapping and chatting and i was like oh gosh i didn't know hip-hop could be like that and their whole pretty sure it was an album not an ep that this track was also on um it was literary and it just i didn't know hip-hop could be like this and, and, yeah. I, and i love it it's like a really uplift i usually go for the dark stuff but this is one of yeah. my party party tunes yeah it's still quite dark i think there's dj shadows involved somehow i think it's kind of fingerprints are on that somewhere i think yeah so, i'm yeah. so nervous that i'm going to mistake make errors with all the history and everything but there was a record out of the bay area called soul sides which right. i'm pretty sure shadow was somehow connected to and right. what they were pretty good at is they were probably connected a little bit to the electronica scene of the yeah. 1990s and the rap scene and also yeah. the college radio scene and so yeah. there's a coming together of interesting sounds and, and people and you know some of these people I've met or I've met people who manage them and so I yeah. sort of see those connections and you appreciate those connections as you get older too yeah but I mean in, in that early 90s time I was I was working in a record shop you know and there uh, and the sort of the, there was a there was a English label Mo Wax Shadow yeah. was involved in that and that was that really crossed over the sort of indie kids you know that bought all the sort of guitar music you know that yeah. was that was their route into the sort of beats you know yeah well. and moax and then ninja tune and some of those labels but also some of the records got picked up by bigger labels in australia yeah. Yeah. ninja tune was came out through creative vibes but i'm pretty sure moax had pretty good representation in australia and also yeah. the festival circuit was pretty connected to that that scene as well in Australia. So a lot of those artists would come out in, in, in ways where maybe they weren't as well known in other parts of the world. Yeah, cool. Okay, right. Enough talk. Let's play the tune. Lady don't take no shit, insist on respect the sister, walk around like a woman if she won't speak, less it's something worse saying don't play, the girl take herself so seriously, people stare curiously, she got a natural way, her hips way furiously, get luxuriously, carries herself like the cutest, most prettiest thing you've seen this side of the bay, go about her business so purposeful that she got razor sharp quick and she just won't quit, flaunting it body built like a house made out of brick, she got the smile, the style, and finesse Compounded with the blessed, profound intellect Select few have ever seen the butt naked And they too want to see the rap protected Cause she don't like violence But she can throw them things So don't let your guard down Her thighs are soft, but her eyes are hard You can't just try to tell her, come on now She digs in the days Alice Walker, Nikki Giovanni Insight number two From your list of ten uh, 10. So bad career decisions sting for years. Oh my God. So this one, uh, you know, it's actually, you know, thinking about my own career, it's probably easier to try and name the good decisions uh, because they are fewer. But, uh, <laughs> you know, you know we, we only have bad decisions. This is our least bad uh, decision. But you said, uh, but you follow up saying about three out of uh, your four moves in New York uh, uh, were less than optimal 
So was it but was yeah. that the sort of catalyst for bad decisions was sort of crossing the Pacific um or whichever way around. Yeah. Uh, like I, way. I had you know, I had people tell me not to move to America if my aim was to do the kind of you know cheeky, provocative, irreverent work mm. that we often not always do in Australia because it's mm. harder to it's harder it's harder in the US for sure. And I did feel slightly misled in a couple of those roles and gaslit in one and you know where it comes from. It's like I I kind of fell into this world of advertising. I was doing a rap magazine and doing a rap radio show and that's what I focused on and the advertising sure. stuff and building websites for Audi or Levi's. That was just another thing that I did. And yeah. I didn't, didn't really have this mentality like a lot of the young Americans I meet in college where they're like, oh, I have to get into advertising. I want to get into advertising. I didn't even really know about it. I was like, oh, that seems cool. You can do creative things and make things and people can yeah. touch them and interact with them. Cool. Um, and so I think that's a bit of a problem. That was a bit of a problem really because I didn't, I didn't commit. And then I was so used to my own independence, you know, putting up posters yeah. whenever I wanted, for example, that yeah. I'm not really an employee, I don't think. Yeah. And so part of coming to the US has led me to the realization that I'm really not an employee. And so what I need to do is take more responsibility for my life and stop complaining about feeling repressed because I'm working yeah. in an agency that doesn't get me and I'm flying around to all these different parts of the US where they don't do crazy weird stuff like I was around in Australia, like stop complaining about it, go do it or do your own expressive thing. So that's, you know, I'm taking responsibility for it, but I was stuck in this loop of probably not good decisions for a while. And yeah. yes, they taught me, but they still sting. And there yeah. are people that I think about every now and then who are not <laughs> nice people. <laughs> I have, uh, I'll confess, I have a little book that I keep uh, here and I write down names in it, you know, and uh, uh, you know, for future revenge, is that unhealthy? Do you think? Uh, <laughs> probably, probably. I had a friend at school who had a list of um, he's like people I'm going to get, and he would yeah. act it out, and it was all, it was sort of funny, but you know, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> I like. I think the main point of that is just admitting that we make mistakes, yeah. and and getting through that advice that's out there of like, well, it's just a it's just a lesson. Yeah, it's a lesson and it's going to hurt and it's okay for it to hurt. Stop telling me yeah. it's a lesson in order to tell me to stop feeling bad. Yeah. You know, there's this grieving process. So that's really where I'm trying to get to with that one, which is like, yeah. it'll sting and you're going to do it again. <laughs> and then yeah. for some of us, we've just got to yeah. take more responsibility for our own creativity, mm. which is what I'm trying to do now. Maybe that's why, you know, because, um, you know, there are a lot of people in advertising that have, you know, that, you know, I get, you know, it's kind of, uh, what am I trying to say? You come to that realization, particularly if, you know, like you, you come at it from being independently sort of just doing stuff, making things, promoting it. And you think, oh, hang on, I know how to sell and I know how to promote. And, and then you go into an agency and you think I've got all these chops already, but really, you know, you don't really get, get to use them, you know, so you have to keep up your sort of um, your own projects on the side, you know, can then you can kind of get that balance because you think, well, actually, I'm not going to get that fulfillment really from the job yeah. Um, yeah. all the time. Occasionally you do. Um, yeah, I think to be even more specific about this and the, the reason why I try to speak in a relatively direct way, but with compassion is it's, it's easier for me to make decisions when I try to understand a, a thing in the way that it really is even though I know there are multiple interpretations. So for example, advertising, I don't think it makes sense for you to try to complete yourself in 
the career of advertising and to give yourself 110% to it because it's not going to do that back for you. It's not going to be loyal to you. It'll get rid of you when it's ready to get rid of you. And that's yeah. probably going to be younger than you expect. And that age is going to happen quickly. Yeah. But also, why should we expect that of the advertising industry? Why should we expect the agencies to be a place where we can be everything we want to be and bring all of ourselves and our best version of this and that? Like, no. Yeah. Keep some of it to yourself. Work it out yourself. Why would you try to do it in, in, in one place? Or why would you try to complete yourself in one person, in one relationship? And, and so I, I feel really clear-headed about that now. Yeah. Uh, because again, it just goes back to that word responsibility that there's a chance that in a career where as an employee, you outsource most of your life and decisions because it's easy to do that. It's easy yeah. to know that Monday, Monday morning, 10 a.m., you've got your all staff meeting that you go to. Oh, good. I don't have to think about Monday morning. Great. You got five meetings that day. Oh, great. I don't need to think about what I actually need to do that day. And it's, it's beautiful if you enjoy it. Yeah. It's but kind of, it's, there's a bit of the sort of curse of, was it curse of knowledge or something? I don't know. It's kind of, mm. you know, because I, I, you know, when you sit in, uh, Sort of, um, especially in big network agencies, and, and to just and and you have to just really eat the bullshit. Um, but there's people sitting there. It's almost like, and you look around, and you think, I wish I was, I wish I was so as naive uh, as these people, and I actually believed this horseshit. You know, life would be so much easier. You know, it would. Uh, it would. <laughs> but 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 what if what if we're our own worst enemies here with idealism? What if the business model, the operating model of all these agencies is actually really simple? And yet, you know, for 10, 15 years, we're like, it's got to be an idea that's beyond an ad. It's got to be utility or an act or communications planning. The idea needs to come to life in an environment in a way where the idea and the environment rub against each other because that's more powerful. Yeah. What if it's just a job? You go write your brief, <laughs> do your research yeah. and you go home. I don't think I'm capable of that. Some people are. Yeah. But... It's not, it's not so much I that. I think, you know, the function, it's, it's the, all the peripheral crap about, uh, you know, it's all about, you know, they, they bring in yoga classes and it's all about wellness and, like, and, uh, and, you know, we really care about our people and all that. And, you know, complete bullshit. But uh, as, as long as you believe it, then you'd, then you'd be sort of happy. But uh, Yeah, um, yeah. Especially, you know, I feel sorry for the younger ones as well because, you know, maybe they just haven't got to the point of cynicism yet, you know, but it's just, it's, it is distressing when it finally dawns on you that, uh, that just this is, this is nonsense. You know? but, uh, yeah, but also, I mean, we can get stuck in that cycle of cynicism. Yeah, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm pretty well class at cynicism and my <laughs> but I've always, I've always acted. I've always yeah. made and done stuff myself. So yeah. I, I use that. I use those that, that those feelings and that way of thinking because there's yeah. a darkness. It's a darkness inside. But I, I'm still I still create. You know, I don't just get stuck in it. And that when we get stuck in it and we wallow in it for too long, we become it. It becomes us, and then it's really hard to get out of it. Yeah. The funny thing is because you don't even notice it really when it's when it's happening. Because I am. Um, I mean, this show is about you, so I won't talk about me too much. But that, because the second book that I wrote, I kind of reread it the other day. I don't know who wrote that. It's uh, it's coming from That's such. A, isn't that a nice feeling, though? It's, it's kind of cool, a, right? You're like, whoa! It's coming from such a dark place. I didn't at the time. I thought it was it was funny. It's not. It's the, it's the most depressing thing I've ever. Uh, come I don't think it's depressing. Know. I read that in I was in I was in Paris. I remember I I read it and. Um, no, that's your art. 
you know, like you take people on an interesting journey and it's not always clear where you're going and then mm. you go somewhere that's your, it's your art and you have these voices inside of you, like all of us. Mm-hmm. Awesome. It, they're, yeah. they're there to be enjoyed. And then yeah. the point is to make the next thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Next, next tune. What's coming up? Yeah, simple track. Yeah. It's by a group called Third Sight. It's called Rhymes Like a Scientist. And the thing I didn't know about hip hop is that you could have an introduction as long as the introduction to this particular song. The yeah. rap straightforward. Uh, but it's like, almost like the whole thing is the intro. You're kind of yeah. waiting for something else to happen. And it, and it kind of doesn't. It's like a 90 second loop. And I was like, damn, <laughs> you can do that? Wow, that's cool. It's not eccentric, like say what Cool, cool Keith was doing with Dr. Right. Octagon and all that stuff. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's simpler than that. But I was like, whoa, you could do a really long repetitive intro. Wow, yeah. they broke a hip hop rule. Okay, so what's is it as a does this uh, does this evoke any particular sort of uh, uh, you know situation in time or or um, so this is from what ninety eight again so we're still in this mid nineties so this is so if you said you started the magazine in ninety nine so things are building up you know so we're now in the year before liftoff you know there's something going on it's like oh wow this you know but, I mean how big was in that in that sort of mid nineties in Sydney, then the hip hop sort of scene, how, how, how big was it? Was it quite underground or? Um... Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty underground. Yeah. Cruise would release a couple of things a year on cassette, maybe CD, maybe vinyl, hundred copies, 200 copies. You know, I'm pretty sure I came across this track cause I used to record other hip hop radio shows. I, I wasn't doing, I wasn't really an adult at this stage, but I was, yeah. I, was I think I came across this track because I heard it being played by, uh, Dr. Fibes, who used to run Next Level Records, and Blaze, who is also known as Idiot Proof, and he set yeah. up the Lounge Room, which came before Next Level Records, these two well-known hip-hop record stores in Australia, and Blaze actually set up arguably the first hip-hop magazine in the world. Uh, and so this song, I'm, I, I still remember it on a tape that I've got from listening to their radio show. I, I think they were broadcasting from out of Bondi, Bondi Beach in the caravan, yeah. for, maybe for FBI, I can't remember. And so there are a handful of the crews around, you know, I quite liked Easy Bass, there was Coolism, mm. um, you know, Deaf Wish Cast, there was a whole, a whole bunch of little crews popping up and they would often appear on the Mothership Connection, hosted by Miguel de Souza. that was like the, the community room for, yeah. for Sydney hip hop. You had crews on the east, as in the east of George Street, and you had crews out west, and sometimes they got along and sometimes they didn't. Very graffiti, uh, b-boy oriented, b-person oriented as well. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, but but still pretty underground. Yeah, when if you know if some of the you know if like I don't know whatever it was Dr. Dre or somebody was on tour, did they come out? Did they did you get you know was there those sort of coming together moments where everyone on the scene suddenly got to see each other because you know because of yeah. sort of uh, you know some big event. Yep, yep. So I mean, I, I was a sort of a generation or two, generation and a half under like behind the people who and really fostered hip hop culture in Australia. Yeah. Uh, so I came into it a little bit later, but yeah, you know, so on my radio show, for example, when I was 19, I spent three hours with Flavor Flav in his hotel and, you know, oh, so Public yeah. Enemy would draw a massive crowd. Run DMC came out, De La Soul came out, and then you kind of had Jurassic Five, Black Eyed Peas, before they were massive roots maneuver from England. Yeah. Uh, you know, most of these people would come on the Mothership Connection when I was hosting it, they would, or I'd meet up with them or, uh, 
when Miguel de Souza was hosting it, they they would make the rounds. Triple J didn't have a radio show, a hip hop radio show at this point. They they launched a national hip hop radio show. I can't even remember what it was. Maybe two thousand. Uh, yeah, but people would come together, perhaps at the Horton Pavilion and Kinsella's. There were all these all these other places around the city that uh, have closed down and fortunately or unfortunately probably unfortunately people would tag up the bathrooms and then we'd never be allowed back so there was that but uh you know events back then a couple of the big events i remember going to an underground event with uh mystic journeyman how old? i'm gonna go 1998 as part of urban expressions first year of the festival pretty okay. sure that was around 1998 they would have had i'm gonna say like two three hundred people really rowdy at some of their gigs i think one was in king's cross there used to also be another another place in newtown but they'd get we'd get good turnouts for crews that weren't always that well known in their own yeah. countries okay cool right i'm gonna play i'm gonna play this yeah uh so it runs like a introduce it like a mean at the end this is this is a bit like um uh, do you know that um playing misty for me the movie the 70s movie with uh, i think so clint eastwood plays this late night dj and he gets stalked by this um uh, it's a bit like uh, what's the what's the movie where um the you know where the bunny boiler thing comes from what was what was that I feel so tested. I feel so tested. Oh, right. you know, but, uh, Play Misty for me was that kind of like the precursor for that. It was like only 72 or something. And Clint Eastwood gets stalked by this mad woman who eventually uh, you know, tries to kill him or whatever. And, uh, but anyway, he does, this, uh, he does this late night radio show and she always phones in and says that line, Play Misty for me. But he, he just talks in this very quiet voice, introducing the song. Yes. Well, Early the, ASMR. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's my... Um, because I got this new mic, I can actually do that. You know, when I was recording these things just on the 
you know, the crappy headphones mic, you know, I'd have to sort of shout, you know, but now I can, yes. can just do the, the normal voice. You can love your way into the microphone. Yeah. Yeah. Right, I'm gonna right. Let's um, we go. We're going through the list. I'm gonna jump to number seven because I think, interest in that last little conversation, we covered some of the bits apart from trappings of the industry, right? So that that is a curious thing. I'm I'm always hustling to get opinion pieces, uh, uh, published somewhere. I used to write for Wark, and then all of a sudden they didn't like me. Um, don't know why. So now I do it with ad news mostly and everything. But that's something you've never really bothered with, is it? You've a heard? little, a little. I've, I've written some crap things as well, but I didn't want to be that guy. You know, it's 28, mm. didn't want to be the guy writing about advertising. And then, yeah. so 2008, I guess I'm hitting 30 now. Uh, 2008, 2009, global financial crisis. I was, you know, I remember hosting this small conference and Julian Cole walked in and he was younger and cocky and recording himself doing crazy stuff on the internet about brands. And I was like, Oh my yeah. God, I used to have that kind of energy. Not like, not exactly the same. And I was like, oh, I should do something. And so I, the first thing I wrote really about the industry that I can remember was on Julian's blog. And it was about what you can learn about community management through hip hop. And I talked about having run a message board for 10 years right. because I was coming across people at conferences calling themselves social media ninjas and gurus. And I'm like, you, I know you, you, barely you you're so new to the internet i've been doing this for yeah. 10 years so i started to write about it and largely as a way to deal with two things one is the fact that agencies and my clients offices were emptying out because people were losing jobs due to the financial crisis yeah. and then also as a bit of an introvert i don't like fighting for attention in rooms yeah. often i could be on a stage sure but like i don't like fighting for attention and so i would write as a way to try to convey some credibility before walking in, into rooms but the thing with with all of that over the years is that especially as they the media struggled with their business model they're basically getting everyone to give them free content and they monetize it and you know so i've been re, re, you know I've had people from various places reach out in recent years and again this is something that i've been able to embrace more in america in the usa uh and i say that because uh, my latin american friends they're always like it's uh, not America, it's the USA. <laughs> but you know, like there's a lot of people who reach out and they want free stuff from you. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm interested in business relationships. Yeah. And so I continually have to remind people of that because I can write for free for myself. I'll probably reach more people. There aren't that many, these days, there aren't that many uh, publications that can really reach a lot of people. And you know, if you're doing like B2B writing, you're probably sitting next to 20 other people also doing free writing. And guess what? Most of that writing is not very good. Yeah. Not that I'm a good writer, but most of that writing is not good. So you're sitting yeah. in an environment against or with weak writing. You're not getting paid. You're not putting pressure on yourself to write well. What are you doing it for? Yeah. For the status and the ego. Well, no one reads it. So yeah. what are you actually doing it for? So, and I say this not in an absolute way. It's really just to push back on beliefs that I used to hold that, uh, not always true. Yeah, no, I know. I know what you mean. It's that it is that constant dilemma because you know it's almost like you know because sometimes you know with clients you know they want to um, do a particular type of advertising or something you know, or or they say what about Outbrain or something and I have to say to them I say well really you know it's kind of such a crappy platform. Do you really want your message to be in amongst? you know, the 10 most disgusting things you can actually eat. Is that the environment you want to be in? And, and then they go, oh yeah. And then of course, then I don't eat my own dog food because then I want to publish an opinion piece in amongst uh, some 
puff sales pieces from, you know, suits from some technology company. And it's, you know, it's always it, that. that it all way. comes back to, to self-awareness and asking yourself, what am I optimizing here for? Mm. And there's a group of beliefs that you can buy into just because you think there's status in it and that they're easy to buy into. Mm. Writing for a publication that doesn't pay you, that might bury your article, that won't credit you, that won't give you a link, yeah. which we've all done. Yeah. Well, why are you doing it? Yeah. Because it feels good. Okay. Yeah. Well, are you also going to take that call from, you know, you set up as an independent person and you're getting calls from agencies and someone's like, oh, just help us on this pitch for free. Could you help us put on this pitch for free? You know, if we win it, we'll work something out. Are you going to say yes to that as well? Yeah. There's this, this series of beliefs that we hold on to sometimes yeah. because they make us feel good about ourselves. Yeah. And so all I'm saying with those kinds of beliefs is just yeah. ask yourself, is this the best way to spend my time? And if it is, let it rip. Awesome. Enjoy it. Test it away. T test away. But just realize that maybe you're buying into some kind of status signaling that is yeah. actually not beneficial for you. Yeah, that actually doesn't actually confer any status upon you. you know, it, just, it makes you look like uh, you're chasing it and it's not there. <laughs> yeah. And, and also, the thing is with a lot of this stuff, you know, for example, doing training for an industry organization or a college, every now and then I'll say yes. Uh, usually I charge because mm. I, have to, I have a family to feed mm. and because it's worth paying for. And every now mm. and then someone in an industry organization will say, yeah, but we're a not-for-profit. And I'm like, do you oh, work for free? <laughs> yeah, like, oh, I'm not a not-for-profit. And do you work for free? No, you get a salary. And so what you do is you build a business and your salary around getting a lot of free stuff from people. Yeah. But the thing is, if you want to do free stuff, do it lovingly. Mm. Give it away. Totally mm. cool. Just ask yourself the question, do you need to? Is this yeah. really where you want to spend your energy? That, that's all I'm suggesting. Yeah. There's a sort of uh, a, a myth or a legend or whatever about um, some, uh, you know, there was a great sort of uh, Kung Fu teacher, uh, you know, uh, in China or whatever. Where's Kung Fu from? Is it China or Japan? <laughs> China or whatever, your Kung Fu is yeah. from China. We're talking, about my favorite, we're talking about my favorite things here, hip hop and Kung Fu. Which, <laughs> which style of Kung Fu? Was it Northern, Southern, straight line, yeah. round? All right, okay, yeah, bamboozling. Just let me tell the story. Kung Fu anyway, China so, it means hard work. Okay, so the Kung Fu master right, uh, was there, and all the kids from the village, right, uh, uh, you know, come up to his house and knock on the door, and they've and they've had a whip round, right, and they've all saved their pocket money and everything, and they give him a big thing, and they say, Master, you know, can you please uh, uh, teach us Kung Fu? Uh, and like, here's some money we've gathered. And he says to them, he says, keep keep the money. He says, I'm going to teach you for free. Because if I was going to charge you, you couldn't afford it. You know, so that's uh, but that's a way of sort of reframing. You know, that thing of um, you can give your stuff away as long as you let them know what it would have cost had you not yeah. decided. Yeah, to, uh, you, you, I think you've got to be comfortable with talking price with some of this sort of yeah, stuff, right? Yeah. And then insisting because what you realize after a while, especially if you're a thinker and expressive and an empath and a bit sensitive you're often going to deal with people in business who are the opposite of those things. And their game is oh, yeah. to, it's like a lot yeah, of young their game alpha is to dudes. extract as much value yeah. as possible. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. like a lot of young alpha dudes dating, just try yeah. and contact as many women as possible, heteronormative yeah. men, of course, and yeah. see what happens, you know? So they do yeah. that to you and then you push back a little bit and you're like, Oh, I usually charge for that. And then you can see them what the, how they respond. And yeah. amazingly, sometimes you'll get really great relationships and conversations out of it, but you'll also filter yourself from people who are just extractors. Yeah. Anyway, 
another tune. This one, if it's if if you're doing them in the sequence that you sent them to me, this yeah, this yeah. was one that that I knew. This is a top tune. Interesting. Yeah. So, this is a song that I don't even know if I really liked sonically when I first heard it. Right. I recorded it from the Mothership Connection when I was not hosting it. I was mm. 16, and I had a few weeks in France at a school and staying with a family in in country France, and it was pretty isolating actually. I think it was the middle of winter, and I, and I hope I'm getting my time right here. And I, this is the track that I enjoyed. It's really simple. It's called I Used to Sell Mixtapes. It's by a group called The Nonce. I think that yeah. was largely a duo, and from memory, one of them passed yeah. away, possibly. Can't imagine gosh. why they never got played on the radio much, you know, with a name like that. <laughs> but no, they signed, they, they signed to, uh, I mean, because they, they, they were, um, they meant something in the UK because they signed to Rick Rubin's uh, mm. label, I believe. Did they? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. They, they were kind of like third sight, just no nonsense rap. They, mm. There's like to rap, it's really straightforward stuff. and. Someone, I signed a few books, which is a weird experience. I don't know if you've ever signed your own stuff. It's weird. Uh, and someone asked me as part of signing the book to write a, one of my favorite rap lyrics. And this song came to mind. I used to sell mix. Because <laughs> the lyric is, I used to sell mixtapes, yeah. but now I'm an MC. Yeah. Hero's journey from yeah. strategist and critic to creator. And I was like, uh -huh. that's... I love that lyric. I used to sell yeah. me tapes, but now I'm an MC. The irony for me is though, I, I did rap a little bit a long time yeah. ago. But it's still, you know, I guess MC, was it still a master of ceremonies? You know? mm -hmm. So that could be any form of uh, public uh, pronouncement. On the bus, rolling to the crib. I would get dibs on the seat with my man OJ. Yeah, rock beats from Lamert Park to 81st when I got home. This was first. I plugged the headphones in, then catch the break. 14 with the system. I was like, great on the turntables. I turned labels back and forth and push stop on the tape. Then down the street to 81st place. The kid with the fat face with the fat case for sale. If you was known, I put the turntable down for the microphone. I used to sell mixtapes, but now I'm an MC. I got the rhymes and beats. I used to rock them tapes. Them tapes, them tapes. I used to sell mixtapes, but now I'm an MC. I got the rhymes and beats. I used to rock them tapes. Them tapes. Back up and world on wheels with the rap contest. I used to try and get mine because I thought I was fresh. Sound like LL Shan with my Roxanne rhyme. It might sound okay. weird, but it was dope. Now, this is interesting. This is where we diverge, right? Because you, you've recently quit drinking. Because I have started drinking heavily. <laughs> uh, so, I can so. tell from your internet. <laughs> And you know how many times I wanted to say it? I'm like, yeah, come on, man. Uh, I'll tell you my logic if you tell me yours. <laughs> yeah. No, but seriously, no, when did the, when did that, um, is that, um, is that relatively yeah. recently or, or? Yeah, man. Yeah. End of May. The funny thing is though, I didn't, when I was 18, I turned 18 and I, I was pretty straight. You know, I was, mm. I was doing martial arts four or five times a week and just trying to earn money and going to university. And I didn't really drink for a year. Uh, but yeah, I stopped at the end of May, so I've nearly had four months off. And 
a few things happened. I mean, drinking at home during quarantine like, doesn't make sense. Mm. And uh, I'm afflicted with a little bit of an Australian condition where I don't just have one drink. I have yeah. a few friends who can just have one drink. Yeah. If there's drink there, I'd, I'd drink the drink. And I just remember waking up one Sunday and I was like, come on, man, what's, what's all this about? And I'm a nerd. So I jumped online and I looked up some research about addiction. I, I, don't, I don't consider myself uh, having gone through alcohol like being an alcoholic, but mm. I was a heavy drinker and doing a lot of travel in recent years, you know, past three, four years, I've probably been, I don't yeah. know, 25, 30, 40 cities. I really don't know. It's easy to have, you're having a glass of wine at the airport because you got to wait two, three hours or maybe two glasses of wine. There's a couple on the airplane. You go do your work, you do your talk, there's a party or food and you're having wine again and then you're jet yeah. lagged and it's just exhausting. And so I woke up one day and I jumped on. I was like, I think I can get through this now, you know, I've, Got this book coming out and that book has been strangely settling unnerving in many ways but it's a, it's a book about midlife crisis without talking about it right mm. and so i came across this concept of alcohol use disorder which is different from alcoholism and i heard mm. someone talk about how you know grew up this person grew up in a broken family they drank at a young age they were around people who did a lot of blackout drinking i was a little bit around that a little and then heard academics talk about or people involved with uh yeah addiction research talking about how it can kind of get wired in you and i was like oh, okay i identify with a lot of these stories and what i was around let alone the australian way of drinking probably let alone the scottish way of drinking the english way of drinking and i was like you know what i don't know what it's ever done for me but i know it's taken time from me mm. and you're getting older anyway you got this book coming out, you got these classes happening, you're doing good stuff, dude. You know, I have to talk to myself in a positive way because I yeah. can come from or be in a dark place quite often. And I was like, what if I just stop? Mm -hmm. And I came across a couple of methods and I stopped and I, I haven't had a drink. And I'm like, because to me, there's no in between. You know, yeah. it's not like I have a drink, I'll have multiple drinks. Yeah. What, what do you, I mean, is a drink. I mean, do you see? I class a drink as one bottle of wine would be our drink. You see that? Be... <laughs> yeah, I get, I get that. I get that. I, like I, and the thing is, you know, I can connect some of this to other binge-based behavior or repetitive behavior. Like uh, I used to pull eyelashes out. I used to uh, put dreads in my hair, and I've been I was braiding them again recently. Braiding my hair again recently because I have this ridiculous mullet haircut that I'll shave All off right. soon. Uh, I would eat loaves of bread as a t as a kid, or box of cereal or a box of biscuits and it's not that yeah. i've ever been really big it's yeah. just that i was probably i don't know i guess it's a form of trying to quell anxiety which is probably partly genetic probably part from just having instability around quite a lot and i was like okay so we're going to keep doing this because it's going to take years off your life yeah. and you seem to be happier now <laughs> happy is a big word but you seem to be happier now so what if we just stop yeah. so i stopped Mm. What are you? How are you approaching your thoughts on this? How are you approaching <laughs> your philosophy on alcohol? I mean, I'm, I'm slightly, slightly uh, joking. I've heard people talk about alcoholism and addiction as is, uh, and I know this is pretty well known and pretty well discussed. But you're trying to fill a hole, mm. and because I committed to myself a few years ago in writing and in podcasting and expressing and doing silly drawings, putting stuff on Twitter. Yeah. Not that any of it's any good, not that any of it deserves anybody's time. I was like, okay, maybe there's another way to fill this hole and maybe it's yeah. to pay more attention to this creativity because in drinking, 
not am, not am, only am I trying to fill a hole that is unfillable, like drinking, I can't drink. <laughs> drinking is not going to lead me anywhere. It's just going to yeah. keep me drowning and it's going to keep yeah. me feeling repressed. So what's the opposite yeah. of that? Expressing, yeah. connecting with people. Yeah. So I've connected with that and that's kind of my way, my way through this. And I, it's not about preaching. People can do whatever they want, but yeah. I, I feel better for it. Um, yeah. 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 No, I mean, I'm a, just for listeners out there who, you know, worried about me, both of you, but the, um, the, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm only sort of kidding on. I've, I've, I've had a similar approach. Well, I wouldn't say I've given up drinking, but um, definitely I've taken up, uh, you know, just learning new things. Like the, my wife's an artist, and um, she had an exhibition uh, recently, so we had to. You know, we had to build a website for it, and so we're thinking, right, who are we going to get to do that? And I was like, fuck it, I'll do it. So mm -hmm. I just learned, you know, just using Squarespace and stuff. I mean, I vaguely knew it anyway, but now it's like, I'm, you know, I could just whistle up a, a, a website in a day with that. You mm -hmm. know, it's like amazing. I've just sort of learned that. And then yeah. we're talking about audio editing, video editing. There's loads of stuff, you know, stuff that you can learn pretty quickly if you just, uh, you know, yeah. spend a few hours doing it. So, I mean, that's, you know, I think that's that's the trick in these kind of weird circumstances. And, you know, you're starting to get bored. Well, like, there's things to learn, you know, that can... Uh, it's, it's the idea that you've got something important, something important to do. I've got important work to do. I've still got, I've still got work to do. Yeah. That's, that's a phrase, those phrases, there are variations of the one phrase there, really. Yeah. Those, those phrases I draw upon quite often to be like, like, what are you going to do, mate? Drink for three, yeah. four hours, like... You know, and the, the thing is, when you're traveling a lot and you're jet lagged, the party finishes at 10, 11, they go yeah. home and yeah. you can't sleep. And it's easy to sit in a hotel bar and have another couple of drinks just by yourself. Yeah. This is what I would do every now and then. Yeah. And it's like, what is that? I could be sleeping and then writing or something. Yeah. So it's a personal journey, but I think there's enough research about the need to have some kind of important work to connect to work yeah. in the broadest sense doesn't mean office work and timesheets but yeah. some important mission to connect to social circle you need to be around uh and then you know probably some form of talk therapy so that you can process what's actually going on um yeah. it's you, easy to be simplistic you've been, about it. you've been in america too long mate. i read research though i'm just talking <laughs> i'm not talking about the usa here i tell you what this is a good segue into the the next tune which is scapegoat um and uh, I didn't know this one, but I listened to I listened to it a few times, and it's. Um, I mean, you're, you're talking earlier on about you know the lyrical sort of content of some hip hop that's kind of very sort of um, literary, and yeah, uh, this is maybe not literary, but I mean it takes on some quite serious uh, concepts, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, I would uh, call it I would call it literary. Right, came across it on a mixtape by DJ J Bird. Hmm. It's called Scapegoat. The group is called Atmosphere. The rapper is called Slug. Huge following in Australia from Minneapolis. And this crew okay. is like one of the main crews in the Midwest. Rhyme Sayers crew. You go to Minneapolis and people in agencies who don't look like they know about rap, they know these people because they're big in Minneapolis. And uh, I just remember listening to this song. I'd, I think it might even kick off this mixtape by DJ J Bird. Um, again, we're going back to... 23 years or so, I don't even know, 20 years or something. I remember listening to it on George Street. In my memory, this could be correct, it could not be correct, but I was standing on George Street in Sydney waiting for a bus 
right near the cinemas, which was right near Next Level Records. And I just popped this tape in and I'm like, whoa, I didn't know hip hop could be like this because this guy just raps for about two minutes. Yeah, yeah. And, and it did, to me, it is very literary. It's like what I could now see uh, like an art student doing if they got into yeah. rap. I mean, it's like, it's like prose in, in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful and it's simple. The music doesn't fight with it. So for me, this was breaking a lot of rules. It, it wasn't trying to be battle rap. It wasn't trying yeah. to be put downs. It, it's, it's poetry. It's the caffeine, the nicotine, the milligrams of tar, it's my habitat, it needs to be cleaned. It's my car, it's the fast talk they use to abuse and feed my brain. It's the cat box, it needs to be changed. It's the pain, it's women, it's the plight for power, it's government. It's the way you're giving knowledge slow with thought control and subtle hints. It's rubbing it, itching it, it's applying cream. It's the foreigners sightseeing with high beams. It's in my dreams. It's the monsters that I conjure. It's the marijuana. It's the embarrassment, displacement. It's where I wander. It's my genre. It's Madonna's videos. It's game shows. It's cheap liquor, blunts. It's bumper stickers with rainbows. It's angels, demons, gods. It's the white devils. It's the monitor, the sound man. It's the motherfucking mic levels. It's gas fumes, fast food, Tommy Hill, Mommy's Pill, Columbia House Music Club, designer drugs and rhyming thugs. It's bloods, crips, fives, six. It's stick-up kids. It's Christian conservative terrorists. It's porno flicks. It's the East Coast. No, it's the West Coast. It's public schools. It's asbestos. It's mentholated. It's techno. It's sleep, life, and death. It's speed, coke, and meth. It's hay fever, pain relievers, oral sex, and smoker's breath. It stretches for as far as the eye can see. It's reality. Fuck it. It's everything but me. On and on and on and on. The, list the last one of your little nuggets, because um, I think that this one, we kind of touched on this as, as we spoke, but it probably deserves a, a, a little bit of, bit of time, which is, um, and I guess this, you know, uh, maybe this is something that you talk to your students about, but, you know, you say if your company really supports you, you're in a tiny minority. So... Um, and you won't work in many environments that want you to succeed. They say it, but they don't mean it. So let's put a bit of a bit of meat around that. Um, so there's a couple of things jump out at me. If you come to really support you, then you're a tiny minority. So who is who is the minority? I mean, it's people with some kind of emotional intelligence. You could mm. say that that's an American idea, but you know. Um, I was really fortunate coming through that I, I did have a lot of them were male leaders or male bosses actually who just got yeah. out of our way. They wanted us to do good work. They didn't create a toxic environment. There were people. Let me name name some people because I haven't done that enough in my my yeah. life to be honest. It was like Steve Finale who ran Mass Media Studios. There was Adam Good who ran Tribal DDB, really important figure in the digital agency and agency scene in Australia. It was, Adam Good, he was the guy. He was sort of instrumental in bringing me to Australia in the in the first place because he was at, yeah. uh, he was um, he was at Colenso at the time in yep. New Zealand, but he consulted for the broader Clemenger Group. And uh, yeah, when they wanted a sort of digital guy into into Clams Melbourne, mm-hmm. uh, and and sort of I was in the frame for that, but he picked uh, he picked me. So yeah, awesome, awesome. Yeah, I mean, and then and then Todd Sampson. Todd's Todd's a quirky quirky guy. You know, super famous in Australia right now. He's on TV all the time. Has about ten TV shows. Um, and it's not that we saw him all the time, and it's not that he was really emotionally available, but he he was there, and he he would relate. Mm. Um, he was you know. It's, done an MBA, studied leadership. So uh, sometimes it's like, hang on, is this you or have you studied this? What is that? But he still created an environment of simplicity 
and emotional awareness, self-awareness, and relatively speaking for the time acceptance. So those, those four, four people, I think that came to mind mm -hmm. really represent that. And, you know, I've probably worked in 10 places, but those four, I was fortunate enough to be around. Mm. It's not common. You know, people, mm. people see emotional intelligence and sensitivity as weakness, especially if you're in management teams, they, because they, they're nervous that it means that you're not going to fire people right. uh, and you're not going to talk shit about people. Um, and I've run into that, especially in the USA. Some agencies here love org charts. They love talking about who they're going to get rid of. They love reorgs. They're infatuated with it. It's all management right. talks about, you know, they don't talk about the work or the people they talk about reorgs. Oh, yeah. money and deals right yeah. but so, it's about it's change it's the fetishization of, of change you know so there's all this change is happening but nobody knows why it's just a perpetual you know it's a, a machine for producing press releases you know? yeah mm -hmm. but american business culture is like that it's very transactional mm -hmm. it's very much about what's new making stuff up and selling it it's deep mm -hmm. in the history here mm -hmm in is religion it, capitalism it's, everything right yeah, it's funny you mentioned like emotional intelligence right? i mean it's not i mean it doesn't really exist but conceptually it's you you would say it's it's a, a, a awareness of the factors in a situation and knowing how to react and yeah, I've uh, seen you actually. I've seen you write about how emotional intelligence yeah. doesn't exist. Yeah, it's it's, it's empathy. It's being it, yeah. it's approaching yeah. situations yeah. without thinking you need to win and be an asshole to win. Yeah. But yeah. it starts there. Like if you if you can start yeah. there, but then I, I think I think the winning. problem is when people uh, people that sort of buy. So this is what I don't know. I don't know. Do they really buy into it, or are they just sort of smarter than me at, at faking? Yep, I've seen that too. I've you know, seen that too. It's like the thing about you know authenticity is everything. Right? Once you learn how to fake that, you've got it made. You know? Well, authenticity is such a complicated topic, but I have absolutely seen male and female leaders uh, mm. learn the language from coaches, and you, you sort of see the management team change, and now they're starting to say empathy, and you look in their eyes. Mm. Like I actually do feel like an empath and I don't, apparently people are using the word empath to mean psychic these days, but I, I feel like an empath. Like I had to, yeah. I watched a lot of people come in and out of my family's lives yeah. and was walking around by myself for hours on end from a super young age, like five, six, seven around the inner city of Sydney. And so I pay attention to things always, right? right? Survival. And uh, it, you can tell the difference when someone starts to come out and there's a performative empathy and they, cause yeah. they use the words, they use the keywords that the coaches yeah. talk to them. And then you yeah. see their decisions. And then when you're talking to them, there's no inner life in the eyes. Yeah. And yeah. that's dangerous. It's yeah. tricky. Yeah. Okay. On that uh, cheerful note, <laughs> It's, uh, so the last track that you picked, so this was completely unknown to me, uh, but but then when I listened to it through, I thought, wow, that's that's amazing because it's, it's this is a bit of Aussie hip hop yeah. this time. So the uh, outfit are called Celsius, and the track you chosen is amazing. And I actually, because on you can you can download their whole debut album, which I think is from '98 or something. It's on the Bandcamp, and they're giving it away for free. Um, so I um, had a listen to it this morning, uh, and that's pretty sophisticated, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah, yeah. I think it's 2000, 2001. Yeah. Why I chose Celsius is, first is of it? all, they're from Sydney. I'm from yeah. Sydney. There's a lot of great hip hop and hip hop history yeah. from around Australia. So, so are they are they people that were that were running around 
at the same time as you yeah, uh, yeah 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 i mean the, so the producer sorek he should be nationally known in australia he's one of australia's best graffiti artists <laughs> mm. um I, i'm like he's so creative uh he, he raps on that track he produces that track uh he be he's the b-boy a lot as well he was in a group called deaf Wishcast, which was probably and arguably the first real breakthrough underground group there were other groups around like sound unlimited posse and there were other pieces of music being made you know emi had a compilation was it called down under by law which is pretty early and there was another group that released vinyl beforehand because there was always a fight about who did what first um yeah. when i was coming up because that generation was probably still around 30 35 so they were still connected to the younger people maybe even younger um Sorek made celsius he was from defrish cast they split it they split Sorek uh got together with a guy called brass knuckles and what i like about this album is that Sorek he's like a gatekeeper for hip-hop like 110 10 respect all-time yeah. le legend of the scene he joined forces with this rapper who's pretty eccentric and was quite similar to this collective out of the US called Anticon. And Anticon were these underground, often art school dudes, like rapping mm. weird stuff and like poetic and weird, mm. just odd. Not like straight up battle raps, but they were skillful, but more yeah. art school skillful. And so the fact that he combined his, this, his sound was always booming and, and amazing. And then he paired with someone who was not, you know, like, I, I don't even know what the word is, but, he, you know, Brass was not like a heteronormative guy. And I, I, that's not even the right word. I mean, he's not, a, he was not a traditional, like, hip hop guy. He, right. he was, you know, could probably handle himself physically, which didn't matter, but he would spray paint, or paint his hair pink. And right. he'd come out with like crazy stuff and wear right. weird things. And I was like, whoa, yeah. you could do that in hip hop in Australia. Yeah. And so I really think this is a foundational album. You know, there are many other amazing local groups that have done so much work for rap and hip hop in Australia. Like Hilltop Hoods, I mean, obviously incredible. Yeah. Melbourne had Obese Records, which was a, a national linchpin for so many artists coming through as a record store and a record label. But this album is, it's beautiful. And I, you know, I wish Sirek was a national figure. Like he probably would be if he was in Scandinavia or something like this, yeah, yeah. Uh, just prolific. place before me and still keep the momentum in this room it's my adventure either the choice of the dark demented jewel dog fighting damp and doom moves or simple science signifying supple but the supersonics will saturate the most fussiest and saucers another protest to seep like water through the earth's crust and break away the loose dust and crud transform it to mud so the plot thickens what do you reckon i could say fuck it or intelligently replace the face and give it a new hook and sink it back into the depths of this river rhyme i'm the iodine repairing what's tearing me apart find a mine in the intertwine i'll lead you in the middle of our cypher huddle and now this rhyme is nearly complete celsius and sing passing the secrets down like cheat take up in the dark and pull out the most amazing piece of art like dash and watch me still shine like shine two riders to stand in the Ozline. commodores beautiful smashing shores and heat that'll make any thermometer peak 
Protection from the Y2K bug It's programmed with it Cause when this technology storm wounds This surface You know I'll be hovering, hovering Just to sort of uh, wrap up, so just make sure we've sort of we've, we've covered everything. So just on 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 the book. So if if there's anyone uh, listening who's to, who's just sort of catching up on this and didn't know uh, about it, so the, originally, so it was a kind of uh, Kickstarter based project. So the backers all got their their package outside of that what what are the plans to you know is it is it available is it or is it going to become available for sort of yeah, general? Yeah, yeah. people can pick it up from um www.sweathead.com okay it's almost 400 pages almost eighty thousand words it's all the all the things that i found important to write and i, I try to write it in a bit of a literary way it's probably not successful every single page but yeah. you know i'm happy with this it's it's a book that um i go a little bit dark but i i think about death a lot and i was like yeah. if i write about this industry if i write about the craft uh based on have, having had you know low good fortune in, in a career while also being quite frustrated what am i going to leave behind so this is the book that came out of me and uh it, yeah it's available online it'll come out as on kindle in a couple of months time with any luck right. um, but it's uh it's not a business book you know it's yeah. So I guess the Kindle thing, although I don't know about you, I find Kindle very unsatisfactory as a sort of platform. Mm. Twice I've tried to try to do things on that, and it, and it just it, it seems to be uh, you know because it's it's a bit like the olden days. You know, we used to have to like test a website on four hundred and thirty-two browsers, you know, to make sure that it's in. There's so many devices that can be that Kindle can be. The format can be seen on it's impossible really to i don't know how uh, to make it look you know 100 percent good but yeah I, um so but i guess you know needs must you know from a distribution point of view that's going to make make your make your thing more accessible to more people around the world um yeah. so, which, which is important but yeah. you know what I've worked with really successful, well-known entrepreneurs in the US mm. and a lot of them don't want to be on Amazon because right. they don't get the data. Amazon controls their prices. China rips them off as soon as they appear on Amazon. These are companies yeah. that have appeared on Shark Tank, people that many people, companies that many, many people would know. Like yeah. one of the CEOs is like top 500 wealthiest people yeah. in the US and they're like, yeah, I don't know if I want to be on Amazon. Yeah. And so you can do whatever you want. Yeah, yeah, you can preach all the marketing sciences people back at me about availability absolutely important mm. depends what you're trying to do in life mm. depends what you're optimizing for yeah for sure uh, and i, mean, I, I think, jo you know, jokingly it, called this book a, i jokingly called this book a desk book yeah. which is not a thing i called it a desk book as part of the kickstarter because i want it to be on people's desks yeah i want people yeah. to touch it and smell it well it's like you know i remember um i, mean, I haven't touched and smelt one yet but i've seen i've seen the the you know the pictures and it's one of those things it reminded me of um what what steve jobs used to say about um the design of apple products he said he didn't view apple products as being computers he viewed them as being appliances hmm. you know and so like you have a you know you, you might have a nice looking kettle or toaster or a coffee machine and he wanted uh you know the apple 
products to to look like that. He was quite uh, enthralled to the designer of brawn products. Yeah, yeah. It's funny if you get well, you can't see this, but if you went into my kitchen through here, we've got all the kitchen thing, but I've got a big uh, uh, iMac in the kitchen. That's like the house computer, and it sits in the in the kitchen, you know, beside the coffee machine. So that's in. Yeah. But but you're uh, that was a long way around of getting to the fact that I think because the uh, so the book strategy is your words. It's such a nice looking object, and I think it achieves that goal of being a desk book because it, it just uh, it looks more like an appliance than a book. You know, it's uh, like a <laughs> there's a weight there's a there's a weight to it, and it just yeah. keeps it, all of this just comes back to the question: What am I doing here? Mm -hmm. And when you're out on your own trying to work out how to live and trying to do weird things, that's a question you have to ask yourself every day because yeah. you're not outsourcing that to a, to a job. Yeah. And so the book and whatever comes next, like I, the question I now ask myself is what's going to come next and how can yeah. I take a bigger creative risk? Yeah. Right? And so I use these questions to push myself beyond where I'm at. And I use adjacencies and, you know, things that you wouldn't necessarily connect with something mm -hmm. to grab some kind of structure for what it could mm. be and uh that's part of the the whole creative process is really fulfilling and um and also the that, thing that is doing, that's creativity it's recombination it is. isn't it it's it is and the, the final thing i'll say is like with the distribution thing you know my stuff's not for everyone because i insist on the technical being very practical mm. like I'll, i'm happy like if someone wants to not have a battle but you know i grew up around that like Let's come up with a creative brief together. Or fine, we'll, we'll battle, but it'll be fun. I'm not doing like a crazy, yeah. silly battle. I'll, I'll do a creative brief, 30 minutes. Let's go. Let's have fun. I'll put myself on the line a little. I do that in public. I do it in advance. I do it on a podcast. Um, but the, the thing is that my stuff's not for everyone. And so putting it into like a mass environment is going to lead to people who are incapable of empathy, introspection, and sensitivity, and abstract thought reading it because it looks like a strategy book because it's got the word in it and then they'll review it and be like this isn't a business book i came here for a framework i just wanted to learn how to write a creative brief because i get that kind of feedback every now and then mm -hmm. and so that's why i'm like you know what i think this is going to be a useful and gentle book for people who have a certain emotional and psychological need and it's going to be really good for that person and that's who i want to read it yeah. and so the availability thing could you know too much distribution could come against it in the in the short term. Could work against yeah. it in the short term. You need to put a sort of you know just to sort of uh, loop this back to the old school hip hop theme. You know, you could put a parental advisory sticker on it. You know, danger, explicit concepts. Yes, yes. <laughs> I I joke with myself when I'm trying to write marketing lines for this, which I haven't really done yet. That it's like a lesson in verbal disobedience and. There's a big word there, but I definitely draw on that rap influence for some of this. There's yeah. that DIY culture that it gets in your, it gets in your veins, and I, and I think yeah. you know you can spend a decade or two in the corporate world, but at some point that DIY is going to need to come out of you in, yeah. somehow. It's, it's okay. just so fulfilling. So, the, but uh, so the other aspect of DIY. So you've just finished the hundred days uh, course. Is it finished? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it's up there, and I, I finished making yeah. 100 classes, yeah. All right. So what's, um, uh, in terms of, um, so the, the, people just can subscribe and then sort of go through that 
syllabus at the leisure is that how is that how it works yeah it's a it's it's a membership it's currently 10 bucks a month i'm, I'm yeah. trying to keep the price low if i sold it as a one-off it would be much more than ten dollars i'm trying to keep the mm. price low uh so it can be accessible you know been, been fortunate enough to be to, to have visited brazil and india and Scandinavia, yeah. all over the place so i'm like i want the 10 bucks there's a lot of money in some places right yeah. Yeah. Uh, and i want to create a different model and part of Part of what I'm trying to do is also create things that aren't necessarily competing with other friends who, or, or institutions who teach or who have really? academies. Like I, we can all work together. Like I, yeah. it doesn't have to be this ridiculous competitive thing because again, yeah. life's short. Yeah. I want to focus more on creativity and making things happen rather than we've got to steal audience share from these people and that, that person. Yeah. And so I'm yeah. trying to create things and price them in a way that don't challenge someone for the most part. Mm. to think okay i can only do this and that means i'm not going to do this other thing yeah well that's the you know i got you know people will maybe you know have have a you know it's the old uh you know coming back to sort of marketing theory you know the old sort of uh, duplication of purchases uh thing you know so it's uh in a in a category people will spread their category requirements amongst the leading brands you know so uh so mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, so if you, you know, other people that are doing similar things are not necessarily competitors. They're just, uh, you know, part of uh, a repertoire that, yes. uh, that those that are hungry for knowledge. Yes. Uh, I, I remember seeing, them. I remember seeing research about that for a particular very well-known um, yogurt brand. Mm. A new, very famous one. New as in the past 10 years. Famous. Okay that we all know and I think, uh, I, know, I think another one you mean yeah. yeah the slide that revealed that other people sorry the slide that revealed <laughs> that people eat more than this brand yeah. disappeared from presentations apparently because really? oh. <laughs> the belief was that the consumers were very loyal yeah. <laughs> and so it was it was interesting when the data came in this is a while ago uh yeah People don't like that, especially like powerful, rich CEOs and CMOs. They like don't usually yeah. like to well, admit that yeah, people use guess, other stuff. Yeah, they would probably prefer that their competitors didn't exist. You know, but uh, yeah, but in the in the category of knowledge, you know, I mean, if, the thing is, if you're interested in a particular field, then you don't just read one book. You know, I mean, you you go and um, you go and get a full spread. Yeah, of uh, of, uh, of the different points of view, and then you make your own mind up. You know? That's so, the, that's what you have to do. Yeah. yeah, these things are just available to you. Yeah. It's like stand stand up comedy. You yeah. don't want to watch one stand up comedian forever, or listen yeah. to one rapper forever. Exactly. Take what you need and move on. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, listen. Thanks very much for your time. Mark, is there anything else you want to plug? Just no, no, no. Before we wrap no, up. Good. Okay. Cool. So sweathead.com is still on the go. If anyone doesn't know about that sort of community of uh, uh, a mixture of uh, up and coming and some um, established strategy uh, people, so you can join in there. And that's where to find out about Mark's book and the training and stuff as well. So, um, yeah. okay, thanks, Mark. See ya. I mean, thank you. Bye. This is a journey into sound. A journey which along the way will bring to you new color, new dimension, new value.
When all is ready, I throw this switch. Pump up the volume, pump up the volume. Pump that bass. Interrupt this broadcast.